Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. This is going to be a film club episode, and I'm joined in this episode by Atul Kumar. Atul is a fundraising consultant in the environmental sector, as well as a podcaster and author of Alien Places, an imagined world tour with an alien visitor. And it's because of this alien perspective that Atul is joining me in discussing the film Arrival. Welcome to the show, Atul. Hi, Victor. Hi, thanks for having me on your podcast. No, it's a pleasure. It's great to chat with you. So this is your first time on the podcast. So I figured before we jump into a conversation about the movie, it'd be great to get to know you a little bit. Um, So could you tell us a bit about yourself and what got you interested in nature and conservation? Yeah, thanks. Um, So I think it depends how far back you want to go, really. But um, I would say... I first sort of became interested in nature and conservation in the environment um, back in sort of secondary school, so around sort of 13, 14 years old. And um, I hadn't really noticed geography up until that point. And then um, I had a really good geography teacher that was uh, really enthusiastic and brought lots of humour into every every class. And um, it really helped me to kind of notice geography and uh, understand the importance of it. And um, it was around the same time that I was thinking about what options to take for A-levels. And um, uh, there was a sort of uh, a thought process where, you know, it's good to be a doctor, it's good to be a lawyer, but first you need a habitable planet and then you can do all these other good things. And so for me, hearing about climate change at that point and that nobody's doing anything about it, I was thinking that, yeah, this is something that is actually the most important thing for anyone to do is, is is to make sure that we have a habitable planet and then all the good, positive, fun things can happen off the back of that but you know first things first let's make sure that we can actually live here and um, yeah at the same time I had a um, sort of a good friend called Pete who we, we used to um, go out on our bikes um, and um, go out into the woods and go mountain biking in, in the woods now our homes and um, climbing trees and doing sloth impressions when we're climbing trees and that kind of thing so um, all these things sort of came together at the same time around kind of 14 15 years old and then um, did uh, geography at A level as well as English and German and then geography at university, environmental management masters, and then um, had a sort of career in the environmental sector sector since then. And and now you've been in the environmental and communication sector for quite some time. And you are a podcaster. You do presenting. You do interviewing. Um, how do you describe what you do now? Yeah, so I've kind of got two pa- parallel careers really. So um, I've got my my sort of day job, which is. Um, fundraising and communications consultancy, mainly for environmental charities. Um, And then in my spare time, I'm doing um, writing, presenting, podcasting. And um, yeah, so the sort of two careers um, obviously uh, interconnect quite well because uh, I'm talking about environmental issues all the time. I think with um, podcasting and and the the alien places concept that we can can talk about in a moment, if you like, I'm encouraging people to think from an alien perspective or think from a different perspective in order to come to the environmental solutions that we need. Um, And I think it's after decades of being in the sector and thinking about these things that I've come to this conclusion that there's always more facts and figures that um, people like myself can can churn off and, you know, um, uh, talk about the particular requirements for certain birds or butterflies or dragonflies, etc. But there's quite a lot of information about that sort of thing out there at the moment. There's also quite a lot of information on climate change and... I think what's really needed is not necessarily more and more facts and figures and more and more information and more and more warnings. 
it's just a completely different way of thinking that is actually needed. Um, and so that's why I've kind of um, lasered in on this kind of um, alien thinking concept, because um, because that's the level of different thinking that we need to uh, to implement solutions. And this is the subject that you talk about in your book, which was published in 2019. Is that right? Yeah, September 2019. So that's the Alien Places book, and and this is what you talk about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, so I, I could have written a, a book sort of straight down, down the line, you know, uh, almost an anthology or or a compilation of solutions. But I'm thinking, actually, I was thinking actually, a lot of people have done that already. So um, in fact, one of the examples that I refer to in the book is um, uh, Chris Packham's People's Manifesto for Wildlife, um, a manifesto that he put together with a number of other people in 2018. And that gives just very clear, cogent solutions to environmental problems and the loss of biodiversity in the UK and elsewhere. Um, so I, I sort of felt like, okay, a lot of that information is already out there. What we need is a different way of thinking in order to implement those solutions. Um, and I, I think um, if you imagine sort of um, an alien visiting us and saying that, um, yeah, on their home planet, um, their planet's burning up as well. Um, but there's a border between two of the administrative regions on their planet, um, and they're busy talking about that border uh, rather than the fact that the planet's burning up. Would we say to the alien, um, yeah, fine, keep talking about that border. Don't worry about the planet burning up. That sounds quite ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of, uh, you're focusing on a small issue, but there's actually this, from the outside perspective, there's a much bigger issue. But, you know, when you're in the in the situation, uh, you're not always able to see that bigger picture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's the small matter of the melting continent of Antarctica. Um, so rather than talking about the US relationship with Mexico or the UK relationship with the EU, maybe an alien would say, why don't you stop talking about those things and start talking about the fact that um, one of your continents is melting and human lungs have evolved not to use liquids, but to use gases. And so if the melting floodwaters of that continent get into your lungs, you're not going to be able to breathe. Um, so um, uh, so these things are quite serious, um, which is also why I, I, I want the alien to, to bring an element of humour to it as well. And as the podcast has progressed, um, I've um, started to give the alien its own voice and um, the, whole, the whole thing sounds um, a bit more lighthearted nowadays um, in the last few episodes of the podcast because um, I've got a silly alien voice going as well. So um, that adds, adds some humour to the, to the uh, fairly serious subjects that we're talking about. What I don't want to do is I don't want to kind of be a, be a carbon copy of someone like Greta Thunberg, or even people like David Attenborough and Chris Packham talking about these things. Um, I've kind of got my USP now, which is this um, uh, slightly sarcastic alien um, that helps to hold the mirror up to humanity and acts as that mirror function for humanity, where when we talk to the alien and when we hear from the alien, we can see what humanity is doing and, and, and who we are for, for, you know, we can understand what we really are and what we're really doing. This alien places kind of perspective and the alien perspective on things is is why I thought that, um, well, first of all, because it was on a list of suggestions that you made, but this movie Arrival is quite a good one because it's it's all about how you understand the world and your perspectives on it. So the film we're talking about today is Arrival, came out in 2016, and Arrival follows the story of when huge spaceships touch down in 12 locations around the world, and linguist Louise Banks is approached to lead a team attempting to find a way to communicate with these extraterrestrial visitors. 
Now, all the while, pressure is mounting as nations sort of teeter on the verge of a global arms crisis, um, which could be set off with a simple misunderstanding. This is a, a fantastic movie. It won um, lots of awards, I think four Oscars overall, uh, and um, something like 68 other awards, um, or 68 awards in total. Um, this is a, a really high-quality film with, with, um, with lots of different dimensions to it. And um, I think on one level, um, this is a, a, a deeply realistic or an attempt to be a deeply realistic expression of what might really happen if or when an alien species comes to visit Earth. And um, one of the very, very realistic scenarios is that we won't be able to communicate with it. And um, even if it's very benign, I mean, let's forget about the aggressive aliens and let's assume that they're benign. Um, They are um, going to really struggle to communicate with humanity on a very basic level. I mean, the chances of them talking just within our audible range are pretty slim. If you think about elephants using um, uh, infrasonic communication and things like that. So in that sense, it's, it's deeply realistic. So I think this idea of basic communication being the first challenge, um, if you want to ask the alien a sentence like, what is your purpose on Earth? You're going to have to first establish what a, what a question is. Um, you've got to establish that um, the reason that you're saying all these sounds is to hopefully get a, a response from the other party. All these things need really fundamental um, uh, expectations to be met and um, so it's not not as easy as it might seem. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that the that most of the other characters just don't recognize that they kind of skip straight to the conclusion, as it were, without realizing all the steps that are necessary to go along the way in terms of communication. That's her her view as a linguist is breaking down language and understanding like all these component parts and what's the function of these component parts. Yeah, I mean, think about how many of us don't understand Chinese. We don't understand even Portuguese or languages that are relatively close to our our own language. So, um, you know, it's very anthropocentric of us to assume that we would be able to jump straight into a decent conversation with an alien. Um, And yeah, the realistic scenario is that we're going to spend a long time working out the the very basics of how to communicate with them. That's assuming, of course, that they even use methods like, um, like talking and writing and um, uh, I mean, with the with the alien that I have in in my book, um, we talk using telepathy. So you know that because the assumption of the alien is that um, yeah, you communicate using telepathy. You know, and it's only much later on that I I give the alien um, its own operable mouth. It's very convenient in this film that the aliens have a, a written language separate from their their spoken one. That's an interesting, very first thing that Louise sort of confronts. Yeah. I mean, before Louise Banks came along in the film, they weren't even trying to communicate with the aliens um, using the written form. So, you know, it, it, it took a linguist to, um, to to think of that. And I think in terms of the, the written form, I mean, that that's where it starts to move into the big, one of the big, big themes of the film, um, which is about linear versus non-linear thinking. Mm-hmm. This means of communication... Uh, is changing the way in which Louise is thinking and then the perspective on time. And and the non-linear perception of time means that she no longer has the kind of handicap, perhaps, that we have with a linear perception. Once something is passed, we tend to forget it quite easily, the impact of it, and 
the future is also something that we often don't take into full consideration because it just seems so amorphous and and sometimes really distant so it doesn't seem like it matters as much so we we forget the past and the future is difficult to see and so all we focus is on is is the present but with this sort of nonlinear mode of thinking you know you can see the causes and the impacts all at the same time and so that your decision making is kind of based on uh, a lot more information and a a better understanding of of you know the causes and the the effects of any particular choice yeah and i think connecting to the environment and solutions for nature and conservation our own perception of time is what is damaging our ability to implement environmental solutions because we see the future as this sort of distant place that will ne- will never really happen absolutely and it it um discounts certain costs as well you know if they are costs that kind of happen to the future. This is uh, the concept of externalities, where there's you know only certain costs are factored into the production of any particular product, but that doesn't mean that the cost that we pay is a reflection of the true full cost of the production of that, because a lot of things like environmental impact and um, living standards impact on the people who produce the products, those are often not fully taken into, in, into account. So you could think of future costs of you know, saving money now by choosing to not take certain actions on climate. Those costs are, we won't realize them this year, next year, or in 10 years. And so they're written off. They're just not accounted for when you're looking at what actions are affordable or not affordable. Yeah, it's the whole idea of um, intergenerational justice, which is actually why the climate strikes of 2019 were so impactful, because in in human history, the most effective um, uh, civil action has been when the people directly affected have been the ones that are standing up. And um, whereas in the past, it might have been, you know, people of certain ethnicities standing up. So now it's, it's young people standing up and saying, we are being affected by, by what's happening now. Well, we're going to be really badly affected in the future. And it, 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 in, by definition, it's the younger people that will be affected more because they're going to be alive on the planet for longer than people in their sort of um, mid or later years. So it's this perception of time and intergenerational justice that is um, conceptually um, raised in the arrival film, albeit not directly. It's not, it's not, an, it's not overtly... Um, an environmental film. It doesn't overtly and explicitly address environmental issues, but I think it raises concepts that apply to the environmental sector. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's certainly lessons to be learned from from that perspective on time and, and thinking more about how the present links into the future and, and the fact that that future, a future, is real. It's out there. It's coming. We have an opportunity to shape what that future looks like. But if we ignore the fact that we have the ability to shape what that future looks like in favor of shaping what our lives only today look like you, you know it means that when that future arrives we might not find that we like it so much yeah and i suppose i think if i have any criticism of the film i don't know if it's quite criticism but um you know if if there's something that i'm slightly uncomfortable about the film with it's it's um it's the idea that the future is kind of a, a set in stone and i think although it's helpful to raise this discussion of how we're looking at, at time and the present and the future it's also important that um we remember that the 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 concept of cause and effect that 
if we do take the right action now, that will have a positive effect. And that's sort of not necessarily the message that Arrival gives. I think the Arrival film does sort of say that whatever you do, the future's like this. And I don't quite like that because it, to me, that's a little bit defeatist. The takeaway that I had from it was that with her perspective on time, Louise can see the full consequences of the choices that she makes. And, and in the instance of that particular choice that she is presented with, do I um, you know, proceed with this relationship? Do I have this child? She can see the full consequences of that, including the fact that her daughter will die. She chooses that pain because of the value of all those other experiences. And there's certainly parallels between this and things like climate change, where perhaps if we had a more full picture of what the consequences of our choices today would be, uh, we might reevaluate the level of pain that we'd be willing to tolerate along the way. So if we could see for certain what the consequences of climate change would be, you know, we might reevaluate whether or not we're willing to accept things like higher energy costs for greener options or fewer uh, fresh food choices or fewer vacation destinations because we'd be reducing our air travel. If we go back, you made a point earlier about the importance of, of linguists, and I think that ties in very nicely to what we both are essentially, which is, which is communicators. There is now this recognition that communication of science is really significant, really important. And I think it's it's particularly important in the world of environmental and, and climate science, because how we communicate those messages really affects the decisions that we make. And, and we can see that in this film. There's a really fascinating moment where uh, Louise is decoding a mission, uh, a message that the Chinese general, General uh, Shang, I think, is sending. And in the message, he mentions the four suits that are present in Mahjong. And from that, she makes a guess that the Chinese have been using Mahjong as a, a metaphor through which to communicate with the aliens with. But that communication medium shapes the kinds of messages. So everything is is positioned in terms of like opposition and yeah, antagonism. Opposition. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the lens through which you look at things and it's very difficult to step out of your own lens. I mean, I mean, I think humanity is getting a little bit better at recognising and calling that out. So around the time of uh, 2016, when we had the, the uh, Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump, they were surprise results to a lot of people because people have been living in their own echo chambers. The idea is really that we have to break out of our own ways of thinking. We need to get into the habit of thinking from a completely different perspective. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be voting in the political parties that have perpetuated the previous ways of doing things. It's a bit like um, that quote from Albert Einstein, which says that uh, we, we can't solve our current problems with the same type of thinking that we used when we created them. So human thinking has brought about climate change. We need non-human thinking to solve climate change. And, and that's why I've got my alien uh, buddy here. Coming back to science communication and climate change, we know that the way in which we present a message really affects the way that it might be received. So if the messaging is too negative and makes the problem seem too huge, you can actually make people shut down because they think that there's 
you know, the way the message is delivered makes them feel like there's nothing they can do. The problem is too big, too intractable. And there's research now going on in schools that if you take kind of a more hope-based approach where you give kids uh, hope that it is possible to change the future and you give them a sense of agency, um, you know, if the way in which you present the message is more about these the actions that we can take now, these are the actions that are happening, um, that kind of approach makes them feel more empowered and, and more uh, willing to take action. Something I wish they'd spent more time on is this whole concept that the medium shapes the message. So going all the way back to the way in which Louise needed to break down that sentence and explain just how much background information goes into even such a simple seeming sentence as, you know, what is your purpose here? Because it links into a lot of conversations that are going on right now about uh, institutional racism and implicit bias, uh, because they're, they're such invisible things. You, you know, the background knowledge that goes into the sentence that Louise was explaining, it, it, it can seem like even something like that is not affected by things like bias and race, but that's that's taking a very narrow view of what that what those concepts mean. And you know, bias is is just whatever perspective it is. So we all interpret the world from our own particular bias and understanding the way in which that bias, our individual perspectives, shapes and affects the way we might be interpreting information that comes at us is something that's really important and, and something I really wish that the film had spent more time tackling in a more explicit way. Yeah, I think that there's um, there's potential for ex expansion on that as, as well in the film. I mean, it's a little bit like, um, I think there's a quote somewhere that, that sort of refers to, you know, what is culture? Quite a hard thing to define. And I think I've, I've heard it defined sometimes as um, um, culture is the assumed knowledge of a group of people. Um, so the, the, the example I like to give is that... Um, in the UK, we think that the main day around Christmas is the 25th, whereas actually in some other countries, even within Europe, the main day is the 24th, and 25th is like Boxing Day to people in the UK. And that, that blows some people's minds sometimes when I, when, I, when I talk about that. You know, you talk to someone from, I think, Norway, and the 24th is the main day. And um, so these little things that we assume are just fact and correct and we don't talk about are actually highly questionable. There's a lot of these little moments of people just kind of assuming that their perspective is a universal perspective. The um, CIA liaison, whatever his role was, near the end of the film, you know, international tensions are really rising. And Louise tries to make the point like there's no evidence that these aliens are trying to play us off of each other. And Mr. Conspiracy Guy, his response is, yes, there is. Pick up a history book. And that sentence is just loaded with so many assumptions. Yeah, One, that yeah. you know there is such a thing as human nature, that it is universal, and then also that it applies to aliens. And also, there's this, um, what you mentioned earlier, this kind of defeatist attitude, like it's happened before, therefore it will happen again, that there's no agency that can come in and you know change things. Just because there is a historical pattern doesn't mean that it has to continue if, if we've got this agency. It's just that one sentence just yeah. is filled with so many assumptions. It's very loaded, isn't it, that one, in, in, in a not particularly positive way for humanity. And also... Um, if you if you look at a history book, well, how many thousands of years do you want to go back? It's sort of drawing a cognitive box around a certain bracket of human history. But actually, if you go back 40,000 years, 
um, to when the Aboriginals were around in Australia, throwing their boomerangs around. Well, um, that was an era of humanity when humans really did live sustainably. And the boomerang is, is, um, is an example that I use with the alien in the book when we go to Australia and we have a boomerang throwing lesson. And, um, and um, the alien, um, throughout the book, uh, throughout the 10 places that we go to in the book, um, it, it collects a souvenir from each place. And the boomerang was the souvenir from Australia because it represents the circular economy or the spaceship econom- economy, if you like, where we have to make everything recyclable and reusable within the physical limits of our, of our own planet. And, um, uh, you know, 40,000 years ago, um, if you were an Aboriginal and you wanted some lunch, then you threw a boomerang and um, you either get your boomerang back or you get your lunch or possibly both. Um, and so that's an example and a symbol of, um, you know, a circular way of living. The boomerang literally circles back to you. And um, that's kind of um, a, a sort of as possibly as close as we've got to nonlinear thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point that you made about sort of, this is again, kind of a shift in perspective. You know, if you see the earth from the outside, it's from, as in off the planet, you know, in space, from the moon, from orbit, there, you have this distinct sense. You can just see that the earth is a closed system because it's floating in this void, you know, this planet is for the next century or so at least is going to be all that we have and so that we need to manage these resources these life support systems uh, in a way that it's going to keep going because there's nothing to nothing else to rely on right and i think it's very easy for those of us who have not been to space to kind of see the earth as this like vast space as this infinite space that how could we use it up how could we have an impact on it and it's something that now we definitely know, no, we can use it up and we can impact it. Um, that is the whole point of climate change. And it's, you know, it's something that we've, it's a lesson that it seems like we've had to relearn over and over again in history with thinking that we could just dump our waste into rivers because it gets carried away into the ocean, out of sight, out of mind, it's gone. But, you know, the river is constantly flowing. It's, you, you can never have a, a huge impact on that. And then, Lo and behold, we overload that capacity that what at one time seemed like an infinite capacity, human capacity to create more and more junk is is only that much greater. And so you we we've overwhelmed that many times. And we're reaching a point now where humans have such a huge impact on the the globe that we're naming an entire geological epoch after us, the Anthropocene, the the legacy of the actions that we take now will leave a mark on the entire planet that will show up in millennia. Yeah, in the geological record, it's likely that um, humanity will be summarised by a thin layer of plastic in the geological record, and then it'll go to other layers in the geological record after that, if we're not careful. Um, And um, yeah, what you were saying there about the view of the earth from space is something that's been referred to ever since the 1960s with Rachel, um, well, there's Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which is one thing, but there's also a book, I think in 1972, actually called The Limits to Growth. And it was, um, it's important, it's relevant that it was in 1972, because it was a few years after the first um, Apollo space photographs of the earth as a single ball, because if you think about it, there've been no no actual photographs um, to really illustrate that we are in a, in a ball, we're living on a, on a ball, a closed system, 
the only sort of regular input is, is sunlight and sun energy, which is obviously important. But in terms of materials, physical materials, it's a closed system. And so um, the idea of not recycling is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so thinking in a circle is actually, in a, in a lot of ways, more logical than thinking in a line, because if you keep thinking in a line, you're going to just use up resources, use up resources, um, because you never get to the end of that line. Um, but if you if you think in a circle, well, you're going to come back on yourself. You're going to suffer the consequences of your own actions, basically. So if you use up all the resources, you, you're going to come back to yourself to a point where you haven't got any resources to use. So it's another way of kind of saying take responsibility for what you're doing. You know, if you if you tear everything up, then you're going to come back to a place where everything's been teared up by yourself. So um, uh, the, the other thing that you were saying there about the, um, the view of the Earth uh, from space um, is, is, is what's commonly referred to now as the, ov- the overview effect, which um, sort of astronauts refer to. Um, and um, there's a lot of uh, quotes from the various astronauts that have been up into space about the impact that looking at the Earth from the International Space Station has on them. And what becomes very clear is that there are no boundaries in the ocean, there's no boundaries in the atmosphere, and yet humans are kind of talking amongst themselves as if there are boundaries in the, in the ocean and the atmosphere. So, for example, when people talk about national um, greenhouse gas emissions, it's almost as if the national emissions matter. And actually, the physics of our planet is that are, are such that national emissions don't matter. Um, it's the global emissions that matter uh, because there are no boundaries physically in the ocean and the atmosphere. Yeah. And then you add in, coming back to arrival and a different perspective on time, the fact that historical emissions also matter because CO2, one of the big reasons why CO2 is such a an important greenhouse gas is that it remains in the atmosphere for a very long time. There are other much more powerful greenhouse gases as in their, their kind of their heat trapping ability is much higher, but they're generally much shorter lived molecules. You know, once they make it up into the atmosphere, radiation breaks those down and they're, they break down fairly quickly. CO2 is not like that. It remains up there really long. And so historical emissions from countries that industrialized really quickly are very important. And so the argument by the more developed nations that you know, no, they're they're reducing their emissions or they're plateauing their emissions. Really, you know, they want to redirect focus onto um, countries that are emerging as big um, polluters now, but that kind of ignores their historical contribution, which is still relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that it ignores is the driver behind the demand. So again, it's that kind of needing to look at the planet as a whole integrated system um, because you know the economic systems is of our world at the moment are such that countries that are big polluters now are not generally that pollution is not coming up just because they're kind of chugging along doing their own thing it's in response to a global economic system that drives demand for certain types of products at certain price points that necessitate these countries using certain sources of fuel yeah i think there's um there's there's uh, a lot of different angles to the um to the film and one of them is the the visual quality of the film as well that i wanted to talk about so films are often broken up into kind of the three acts the classic kind of three act structure where you've got kind of act one where the challenge or the call to adventure as they call it is, is being established and then you've got act two where 
they're trying to um they're in that they're in that adventure they're in that journey um and um acts two typically ends where it looks hopeless that the hero of the film is going to be able to achieve the goal and then something changes around the start of act three and then there's the resolution in, in act three and so in act one of the film and in act one of arrival um there's a there's an amazing scene where um we're with louise in the helicopter and um she uh, is flying over the sort of the flat landscape of Montana, where one of the twelve alien vessels is is, is levitating, and um, it's one of my favourite films in in, in cinema. But, sorry, one of my favourite scenes in all of cinema because it, the, the use of music, the quality of the visuals, the discordant way that that alien shell is sort of hanging in the air is so well made, and I think. I think uh, any discussion of Arrival needs to include the the the, the, uh, the brilliant way that the film was made and the use of the visuals and the, and the music was so atmospheric. It sort of reminded me, you had this real sense that something special is happening. And it, it, it sort of reminded me of, um, you know, when you go on holiday and you kind of, you've arrived somewhere late at night and, and you get into a taxi to go from the airport to where you're staying or something. And, and you know that you've got a really special adventure ahead of you and it really felt like that to me it really felt like um you know something really significant is going to happen to louise and to humanity and it was a sort of humanity defining moment um the the silence of the alien shell itself in contrast to the 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 beating of the um helicopter and the sound of the helicopter itself it being a fundamental reminder of how important gravity is to humans versus the effortlessness of the of the massive alien shell just hanging there with with no effort whatsoever so there's so much loaded in that scene it was actually I think my favorite certainly my favorite scene in the film and um, I think it just goes to show that not everything about feature films is about the words and the concepts and sometimes it's just showing the otherness of the aliens through um, the visual means of, of cinema was fantastic the um the way in which the alien ships depart the planet i think it's it is quite special it doesn't just like shoot off into space there's something about that dissolving into clouds into mist into you know nothingness because you become quite familiar with the aliens and the ships but there's something about that transition away that makes it clear again ah we're dealing with something totally alien here that kind of um requiring shifts in perspective is something that I think is quite interesting as well, because um, right at the initial the part of the film, the first time that Louise and Ian go into the alien ship, into the shell, they're brought up in a, in a scissor lift. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going up into the ship, but inside the ship, there's a transition in gravity so that up becomes forwards. It becomes sideways, becomes down. They really play with your sense of perspective in that whole sequence. And it really shows that, you know, when you're going into that ship and you're communicating with these aliens, it requires this whole shift in perspective, not only in just the sense of up, down, forward, backwards, you know, um, but there's also the additional level of needing to shift perspective on communication again, where you're going to have to look at things differently, where, you know, every word that you exchange every symbol that you exchange you need to think really carefully about what it means because 
they're the aliens are going to be looking at it from this totally alien different perspective which is kind of physically represented by this change in perspective when you go into the ship and yet after that first scene you kind of become totally used to them walking horizontally on that floor to that you know white misty screen and you don't even think about it anymore yeah yeah that's 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 a really interesting point in itself Victor, as well that um actually the the um the challenge of changing your perspective is in the process of challenging it. And actually, that challenge doesn't stay with you. Once you have changed your perspective, it is then easier again. And I think that's a positive message, actually, that, um, you know, we do, for example, need to change how we think about who we vote into power in, in, in the US and the UK. You know, um, and, but once you've, changed, once you've made that change, it's actually not that difficult afterwards. So, for example, um, you know, if we, if we want to be voting in accordance with the physics of the atmosphere, then we need to be voting for the Green Party in the UK. That's not a political opinion. That's a scientific, uh, that's a scientific observation of, of the main parties. We, um, we have one party that is ideologically aligned to the physics of our atmosphere, and we have a couple of other big parties which are not quite aligned with the physics of the atmosphere. So if you want to vote in a party that is aligned, then you don't vote for Conservatives. You don't actually even vote for Labour. You vote for the Greenest Party on the ballot paper. But once, and I think in, in places like the UK, that's quite unusual. And most people find reasons to not vote for the Green Party. And, and whereas actually in Germany, the Greens were in coalition, for example. And if we do get the Greens in, in, in the UK, um, we'll get used to it very quickly. And it will become quite boring to have the Greens in, in power in the UK. But it's that transition in our way of thinking that is the uncomfortable bit. Going back to something that you mentioned was this sort of separating out physical reality from ideology so you can look at what are the policies and what are the what are going to be the concrete implications of those policies and it's very difficult to separate that from ideology because we don't often think about just how much of the way in which we make sense of the world is shaped by ideology and and how we value things is also shaped by our culture our ideology that we sit within we kind of assume that the things that we think are good and important are in some universal abstract sense like good and important but taking this kind of alien perspective where you you are removed from the culture removed from the history, it's kind of a way of attempting to forcibly strip that away. And so you go down to what is the the core important meaning of something. Yeah, I think I think um I think for me it's around kind of um sort of honesty is is one way of putting it. Sort of um what's the honest situation around climate change? And um, what, what's, what's the real situation? If you if you try and take all the all the um, subjective things out of it, um, the the real situation is that we are on course for much more than two degrees of warming. And what more than two degrees of warming means is um, ice caps melting, um, coastal cities being flooded. These are physical things which are very different from education policy or taxation policy. And um, so even even if um, uh, you know, I might not know or like some of the policies of, uh, of a particular Green Party, for example, um, it sort of doesn't matter because their opinion-based 
um, issues, whereas the, the physical rising of the sea level is not an opinion-based issue. It's, um, it, it's the physical reality of the measurements of the sea level. And so I think it's, it's quite important to separate those things. And sometimes I think, or I try and think, is if I don't have an opinion, because I think um, that's kind of how an alien would, would think. You know, an alien would look at our planet and say, they're melting Antarctica, the sea levels are rising, that's going to be bad for humans, stop it. And yeah. whether or not that same party has a dodgy policy on education or taxation actually doesn't matter. You've got to pick the party that stops it. You've got to pick the party or the individual or however the political system works in your own administrative area. You've got to pick the one that is aligned with the physical reality of um, of the planet. And I think that to aliens, that might not be particularly controversial. That it might even sound like a bit of a wacky thing for me to be saying. But but to an alien, I don't think that that would be wacky at all. I think the aliens would um, firstly sort out the physical reality of things and then, as a secondary issue, look at education policy or taxation policy or other things. But you've got to start, your starting point has got to be sorting out the physical integrity of your planet and, and make sure that your planet is habitable. And then, just like in my own career decisions, first you have a habitable planet and then you do lots of other good stuff. But you've got to have the physical planet first. And that's why I didn't become a doctor. You know, I had the grades, you know, I could have potentially become a doctor or a lawyer or anything. But I wanted to make sure we have a habitable planet. If we come back around to this decision that Louise makes to, in order to have a child, it, it is kind of related to this. Because when you're looking at policies, there's concrete like, okay, what do we want to achieve? What do we need to do? So if we look at climate change, what we need to do is reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So it sounds at first very straightforward, but when you're making a decision of how are you going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that is a much more complicated question. And so that that's where you need to come back to this issue of values, you know, how much and what kinds of of pain and discomfort are going to be tolerable. So this is this kind of moral choice that Louise and Ian have where Louise makes a decision based on of this full picture, knowing what the consequences are. And when Ian is given that same body of information, it's interesting that he does he makes a very different value judgment on that information. He decides that the the pain of losing that daughter is is not an acceptable pain to tolerate. This is a similar mm. thing when we're looking at climate change. But the added lesson that I think Arrival has when you're looking at making this kind of calculation is that when you're trying to look at how do you value things, you really do need to look at that fuller, bigger picture. You need to look at different time scales. You need to look at different geographic scales. You know, it's not just about the impact that reducing use of coal, it's not just about the economic consequences that that's going to have for you and your family and your community. It's also what is the cost of a decision to the entire global community in decades from now. So, you know, beyond the life scale of you, your family, your grandchildren, because that's a choice that's going to have impacts, you know, centuries down the line. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a separation between clarity on the problem, which is that we need to reduce carbon emissions and uh, discussion on the solutions. And you're absolutely right that actually the more interesting and more difficult and challenging discussion is around the detail of the solutions. And I think where humanity is at the moment is that it's it's starting to get there on clarity on, on the problem. 
Um, and there, there has been, with the likes of Donald Trump, for example, still a problem with clarity on the problem. That should be a thing of the past, and that should be quite boring, and that should be that should have been over in the 1980s. But yeah, you're right that um, that 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 doesn't take away from the discussions about um, how exactly to implement solutions in a moral and sustainable way that's equitable and, and fair for everyone. Yeah. Well, this has been really great. Did you did you have any other like final thoughts that you wanted to say on on the film? Well, I think my only um, other thought would be that um, it's, uh, I think for me, a kind of a 9.5 um, film out of 10. I think the, 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 the only thing that is perhaps missing is, um, <clears throat> um, is a little bit of humour, I think. Um, I think with, with a bit more humour, then that would, have, that would have been genuinely an all-rounder film. And I think there was perhaps a slight sort of missed opportunity there to bring in some, some more humour. Um, and that's that's kind of why I've I've brought the alien into into my life and my book and my podcast um, and given its its own voice now and um, I think it likes to join our conversation now actually um, uh, hello Victor yes uh, uh, alien here how are you today I'm doing well alien I'm glad you could join us uh, thank you very much I've been listening in on your conversation with Atoll here about arrival and it's a very interesting discussion thank you very much. Well, I'm glad you could join us. I've got one final question about this. So we've talked a lot about how climate change, uh, how the the shifts in perspective that arrival encourages us to have, the really important consequences that that has and how important that is for climate change. Is there another situation facing humans at the moment that you think could benefit from a similar shift in perspective on timescales, geography, importance, meaning, values? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the everything that we've talked about can um, fairly similarly be applied to biodiversity and wildlife. I think there's a, there's something around the very simple cause and effect relationship between um, when you cut down rainforests, you're then losing very valuable resources for for ourselves. And um, uh, in, in in the book, we talk about kind of we refer to the Amazon as the pharmacy, you know, and we're we're losing the pharmacy quicker than we can understand it. And we actually refer to another film um, called Medicine Man, starring Sean Connery in, in 1992. And that film makes a very clear point that um, that, that um, the cure, cure for cancer could well be in the Amazon rainforest that we're cutting down. Um, so I think it, that's kind of another way of valuing nature. And it's just a, a completely different perspective to the dominant perspective that we've had throughout human history in the last thousand or so years, where... Um, yes, certain individuals have been aware of this, but generally humans have been cutting down the rainforest. Um, and it's not just the kind of medical benefits that we're losing from the loss of biodiversity and, and wildlife and nature. There's also kind of the environmental services. In, in the book, I call it the the seven E's, which I can, I can list for you if you like. Yep. So the, the, the first one is ethical. So the intrinsic value of nature, regardless of human benefits. And then there's environmental services, which is uh, things like storing carbon dioxide and reducing flood risk. There's the ecological functions of nature, such as pollinators. There's the enjoyment, so the fun of interacting with different life forms. The educational aspects, so helping to understand how different species function and interact with each other. Uh, The economic aspects, so materials for products that could be sold. And then the final E is even if none of the above, so even if you're not interested in the environment, nature, wildlife, conservation, you're probably interested in your own health. And so even if you're not interested in the other six E's, 
the, the seventh eve, even if you're not interested in the other six, um, is is that you probably care about your own health and therefore the um, potential to um, study different species for the the DNA that we can apply to our own drugs and medical advances. That 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 helps you personally as well. So it's this kind of different way of, of valuing nature, different way of uh, thinking about things that arrival has encouraged us to do, which can also be applied to the way that we think about wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good example of something that of an issue that really could benefit from, you know, being able to look at it from these different perspectives. So um, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thanks very much, Victor. Yeah, thanks for, uh, for the discussion and uh, for um, inviting me onto the podcast. Yeah, it's been great having you on. Hopefully we can have you on again sometime. Um, but for links to um, your book and your website, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, I will put those links down in the show notes. Uh, and full notes can always be found at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. Thanks for joining me again. And thank you all for listening. Great. Thanks. Bye for now. 